0: Before we do that though, I I started this tradition last week with a vocabulary word, I want to give you another one tonight and this will just kind of reinforce what we've been saying so far. So, uh, Felix, let's just go ahead and move to the next slide real quick, just because I wanted to show you another picture while I set this up. (laughs) Uh, Who can tell me, I think I know some some people in here that will be able to do this, Um, who knows? When I mentioned the geological time scale, any of you heard of the geological time scale? Okay, so let me, let's me let ask a follow-up. I see a couple of head, head nods. So maybe this is a way that everyone could um, connect with this. Where does the Jurassic in Jurassic Park or Jurassic World come from? Those of you who are nodding your heads, can you help the rest of us out?
1: It comes from a period in the, in the uh, time scale about Oh, 65, 80 million years ago. In the Pleistocene era, awesome. Great,
0: good, perfect. Okay, so everyone, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, these these movies about dinosaurs that are re-through re, genetic re-engineering, they're brought back to life. So these are these creatures from the Jurassic period is the technical term. All right, so let's go to the next slide. So... Here's the geologic time scale. It's divided into uh, like eons, or the the largest. So eons is like back to the beginning of the universe. We're talking millions, 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 billions of years. Then eras, then periods. So if you see on the slide there, there those are the eras in the middle where we've got these larger. Um, sections, and then those are divided into periods, and you can see the Jurassic there. I don't have a pointer to point it out, but but can you all see that a little bit? So this is like where geologists, right, who are studying the age of rocks and dating when these various layers are coming from. Those are the names that they give to them building up. Does that make sense? Does this bring you back some fuzzy memories from school for many of you? Me too. Okay, so... Our vocabulary word for tonight is what's going on at the top of all of those layers. So there's a group of scientists who um, are in the middle of debating the name for the next layer. They're proposing that we really need to um, give a name because there is a, a new period that we are in of geologic time. So remember, when they talk about these these periods and ages. like Also, you remember from other kinds of human history, like the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, right? We're talking about tens and thousands of years ago in the human history, it's starting to divide up even smaller. So, I'm gonna to have to refer to my notes here, but this group called the Anthropocene Working Group of the Subcommission of Quaternary Stratigraphy of the International Commission of Stratigraphy. Do you follow that?
2: <laughs> that, is,
0: that is a group an international group of professional geologists, and these are the people responsible for establishing the names of these periods, when they begin, when they end, and making sure that everyone agrees upon them. So, doesn't that sound like a really fun group of folks? Like, the reason I read to you that, that entire name is that these are folks, these are really serious people. They're not just casually throwing out things, you know, they don't bend to the political winds, this is the really important thing I want to emphasize here. Okay. So this working group of geologists who, their specialty is the, the, the geologic time scale, have proposed that we need a new name for the geologic period we now live in. And those of you who know a little bit about this, do you know what the name of this proposed new period is, geologic period is? Does that have something to do with plastic? Well, sort of. Yeah, it's not in the name. I actually said it just a second ago. Um, Felix, let's go ahead to the next slide. But just, okay, so this is the proposed name. And it, it was adopted. It's going through, you saw, there were like five names. And this is the working group of the subcommission of the coordinary uh, yeah, coordinating, uh, meeting of the International Commission on Statigraphy. Five different groups. It's more complicated than a Baptist church hierarchy, uh, internal hierarchy, at least. All of these groups have to sign off on it, but it's been working its way through this process for about 15 years. Where this group of geologists has proposed yes, we need this name called the Anthropocene to say that when geologists are looking at layers of rock and earth, when they want to say this is at that layer, that it happened in the period of the Anthropocene, just like the Jurassic period, you know, these dinosaur fossils were there. So, you've seen this. This prefix before. So, what would be your guess as to what that word means, the Anthropocene? Human. Period. Yeah, it's, it's the human period. And so, think about this. They're saying for geologists who deal in at least tens of thousands, or usually hundreds of thousands and millions of years of all these layers of rock, they're saying that there has been enough of a change. Again, these are very, very serious folks, these are not political activists, these are, you know, they go to these kinds of conventions to debate these kinds of things for 20 years before they sign off. There's general agreement among this group that there is a new geologic period called the Anthropocene, where when you look at the layers, at the geologic layers, the the crust of the earth, whether it's soil or the rock underneath, what you will see at a certain point that marks it from what is below it is the signs of human activity and impact upon the planet. So their big debate is, where is the starting point? There's there's large consensus, there's a few dissenters, but there's large consensus that this is an accurate and helpful name for geologists to to talk about what time in the long history of the earth we live in. What they're debating is, when did it start? Some say it started way back when humanity first, um, when agriculture was first introduced by humanity. And agriculture on a large scale started really just changing the surface of the earth and you can now see that as, it, as it's been deposited in these layers. Others say, well, it's really with the Industrial Revolution or maybe like around the time of the Western colonization of the world and then industrialization. Uh, the proposal that's gotten the most interest, though, is, is saying that this new era, this breaking point, where the, the rock layers, where future geologists will be able to date like layers on, on mountains or in other places, it's really around like the 1940s and 50s what well 1945 to be precise what do you think would have happened in 1945 that could mark the beginning of the anthropocene this new age whose primary characteristic is the impact of humanity on the earth atomic age Topic. yes yeah so there are just little traces of isotopes like you can find it in snow layers and glaciers on mountains that's what the point pointing, that kind of thing they talk about the trace presence of plastics in a new way with the mass production of plastics But the point is, in all of the millions of years of Earth's history, geologically speaking, the difference that we've now entered into is this clear marker of (coughs) the obvious evidence of human imprint, of, of humanity's effect on the Earth, starting in very recent memory. Whether it's 1950 or whether it's 1750 or whether it's in BC, in geologic time, those are all still like kind of seconds in a day, right? Milliseconds even. So, Anthropocene. Uh, <clears throat> you'll, you'll hear references to this, and uh, we're going to spend a little time with the video in a minute, and you're going to hear that word, Anthropocene. So I wanted you to know where that comes from. If you'll keep your ears open, I bet you'll hear it. You'll see it maybe just randomly on a news report. Um, it's, it's been kind of out there in discussion for a little bit. Had anyone heard that term before, Anthropocene? I see your head nodding Jim. Again, it's it is somewhat controversial because it, it, because of what that's saying, right? I mean, we talked about a little bit about the controversy over claims for climate change, but these are these are scientists, not political activists. Again, this is, this makes a lot of these scientists nervous because obviously they're wading right into what's often a very controversial topic, a heated debate, but. To them, they're just simply doing their job. The best way to accurately describe what the period we (laughs) live in, in geologic terms, is to call it the Anthropocene. Before we move on, any any questions about that? Comments? (laughs) Okay. What I want to do tonight is introduce you to um, one of the friends I brought up the first night we were together. I said that in many ways, um, I look at this class as a chance to introduce you to some really great resources. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the amateur here that, that, that just loves and understands why this, uh, this conversation is so important. Um, but here are some of the experts that I have found incredibly helpful to me along the way, and tonight someone I want to spend a little time with is um, a scholar of the Old Testament named Ellen Davis. She teaches Old Testament at Duke Divinity School, and um, I had already read some things that she had written, but I got to hear her. I'm going to play a couple of clips from a talk she gave a little over a year ago at a conference at, at Baylor. It was on stewardship of creation, so very topic. Weird. Here to discuss. And um, we're going to listen to part of it tonight. We're going to pause a c- couple points along the way and have some discussion. And we won't listen to the whole thing at all, but we will listen to some more in two weeks. Uh, I'm more than happy to share the fact I will share the link on Facebook, and, or if any of you don't do Facebook, and uh, I can understand why you might not, uh, you can email me and I'd be happy to send you the link to this entire video, because the whole thing is well worth your time. So, quick time, and then press the, the green. Okay. Don't press play yet. Okay, so that's Professor Davis, Ellen Davis. And the name of her talk is The Land as Kin: Renewing Our Imaginations. And we're just going to hear this opening line for a second. And I want to point something out, then we'll, we'll pick it back up. So go ahead and press play.
3: Still, I assume we're all a bit sleepy. So, the main points are on the screen. This is is the bottom line. The Bible is the best single resource for reimagining our place in the created order. That is just 15 words, but I have chosen them deliberately to address a couple of common misapprehensions. So let me state those misapprehensions at
2: the outset. Go ahead and pause it.
0: Okay. So, I don't want to let that go by without just underscoring what she just said. So, we we started off by reminding you of what Lynn White had claimed, right? That the Bible is the problem. The Bible is what has created this attitude of superiority, of human superiority over nature, that the rest of the world just exists for us to do what we want with. Here, she's not really on the defensive at all. Again, she says that the Bible is the best single resource for reimagining our place in the created order. The Bible is the best single resource for reimagining our place in the created order. So that's a really strong claim, isn't it? It's not just, we're we're really not that bad. No, it's saying the Bible is the best resource we have for getting out of the ecological crisis, for understanding, rightly understanding, who we are in relation to the rest of the world. Okay, and then she says, I've chosen those words very carefully so that we can deal with what she calls two misapprehensions. And um, what she has to say about these is really rich, and we're not going to be able to delve as deeply as we could, but I I definitely want us to have a little bit of a discussion about these. So, do we forward it, Felix? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, go ahead and press play and then go. The New
3: what we call nature, the biblical writers call creation, thesis, or the works of God's hands, Elohim. Uh both terms pointing directly to an author or personal source. And both terms, both biblical terms, are used in ways that include humans indiscriminately with non humans in that category. This might seem to be the the kind of semantic quibbling that gray headed biblical scholars do for a living, but some of the quibbling actually matters. My point is that the Bible urges, even requires us, to rethink things that may at first seem completely unexceptional and unobjectionable, such as the view that nature is a discrete sphere of existence separable from our human existence. Most of us like to be out in nature, but few of us perhaps recognize ourselves as fully and inescapably part of that entity. Similarly, the word environment would seem to imply something around us that does not include us. But if we speak of the works of God's hands, then we are constrained to see ourselves as part and parcel of that created entity. And that, I shall try to show, is precisely how the biblical writers saw themselves and all the people they addressed, including ourselves.
0: Okay. <clears throat> okay. So, there was a lot there, and I'll, I'll kind of go back a little bit and retrace some high points for you. And then I'm going to talk about this for a second. She says again that the Bible is our best single resource for reimagining our place in the created order. Right? And she says, so partly what we need to reimagine is how we reimagine it is thinking about the words that we use. So, you know, she said, our place in the created order. Says that it was on a life. slide that they showed a minute ago, some of your live. She had it on two columns. She said, Here are words we commonly hear and use. And she said, and we Christians do all the time as well. We use the words nature or the environment on one hand. She says you will not find a direct equivalent for either of those terms in the Bible. Instead, you will have references to creation or the works of. The work of God's hands or the works of God's hands. And then she says, you know, this might sound like the kind of nitpicking, right, quibbling that a great headed professor would be famous for, but she says that it matters. She gave some reasons, and, you know, I'll, I'll make sure we clarify those in a second, but let me just throw that out to y'all. Okay, <clears throat> she's saying there's a, there's a difference, and she, she mentioned some of those differences, between using the words nature or the environment. Talk about all this other stuff. I don't want to use the other words, right? Now. But she says the biblical terms are creation or the work or the works of God's hands. <clears throat> What's the difference? Be- <clears throat> What's the difference between those? And do y'all think it's a difference that makes a difference? <coughs> Step over.
2: works with God's hands, to me that's all incompetent. If we just talk of nature or environment it leads man out to the
0: right. equation. Exactly, and that's one of the big points you wanted to make, right? When you say nature is, it can seem something exterior to us, right? Right. Same thing with the environment. You might get plopped into an environment, but it's not completely clear, are you part of that environment too? What's your relationship to that environment? Does that make, does that make sense?
2: But I also think there's a there's a personal component to it. That when you speak of creation, you're speaking of a creator. That someone has something to do with this. Whereas nature or environment is depersonalized language. I think maybe that's one reason we try to mask that by saying mother nature. We're trying to add some relationship to it. But... It's inherently depersonalized, and so we can either think of it as what what we're surrounded by, and we ourselves have something to do with God, or there are these mechanizations of order that kind of made us and all that we see, which makes it easier then to manipulate. It's easier to manipulate a git than it is to mani- manipulate another person. Right. He she. We don't use that word, but a
0: vowel. Right. No. Anybody else? As you, you think about the difference between those terms, do you think it's a difference that makes a difference? If we were to sort of like watch ourselves and just stop, and and I, you know, obviously I heard this before, and I do try to be mindful but also not be nitpicky, right? Be the language police. Um,
2: but what do you think? Yeah. Chris? I think it makes a difference, but I'm also. The, how that word has been used for so long makes me, has, makes me like near to you. Or which one? Creation? creation yeah, uh-huh. because I don't want somebody to think I'm, because I'm not, I'm not a six-day literal creationist, and so that has been so often connected with that, but yet I enjoy the theological richness mm-hmm. at least for the word creation, right. Right, as opposed to kind of the more sterile nature, environment that's just completely disassociated from God, from humanity, from anything, big narrative. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's hard. I mean, it, it is just how we talk, right? Like, so, I'm gonna go spend some time in nature. It just feels awkward for us, that I'm gonna go spend some time out in the work of God's name, God's name. <laughs> I mean, you, you could, and maybe, maybe it's worth the effort to, to stop. So just to, to repeat, go back. The two things that she says, the differences that come out when you use those biblical terms is that creation or the work of God's hands points you to an author, right? To a creator. <clears throat> so there's a personal element there too. It has a personal source rather than just some randomness. There's relationship at the heart of it all, right? From the very there was never a time when there's not relationships. From the, from the time there was anything, there's been relationship. Creation right. indicates
1: a purpose. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's why we create things for a reason, right? Nature it just exists. It, just it could, exists, but yeah. yeah, right, right. To right.
3: So me, yeah. the word creation <clears throat> versus nature, creation is just a deeper element of our thought. Nature is
2: more surface. Surface, so yeah, but okay. Creation and God's work,
1: Handiwork.
0: work, yeah. it's just deeper. deeper. Deeper, right. It means more. It means more, right, because purpose, relationship, yeah. <clears throat> So, two more things about, two quick points to make about that. The um, first is, I mentioned this a minute ago, I do think this matters. I do think the language matters, and I think we should really be mindful about that. But at the same time, right? No one wants you to run around being the language police. Um, so, you just you know, need to use some judgment. There's a few in this room who might get it. It's sort of like, you know, the movie Mean Girls. It's like, stop trying to make Fetch a thing. Like, do you know the line I'm talking about? Like, I know. Um, it's like the kids in high school where someone's trying really hard to make a new phrase catch on. You know, like, no one is picking this up. So a lot of Christians have been talking about creation care. Said, so, well, this is the way Christians talk about what others call environmental. is creation care. I've always thought it felt awkward to say it, kind of forced. But I know, I understand why. So I try to use that language sometimes too. Um, if anyone has a better term than creation care. You're
2: welcome to try and see if you can catch on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think
1: nature can be he associated uh, uh, with creation. I think we've attempted to, to make them one. Uh, I, I, and I think it's reflected by, even in our uh, uh, community. Uh,
0: this is my father's world. We my listening ears.
1: All nature sings, yeah. and round these sings like the music of the steers. So, it's relating all that to my father's work, right. right? Which could be said, this is my father's creation.
0: But, that's a really good example of how, and so our culture reflects that in music and art. Yeah, absolutely, right. We we need to use the words we we have, and then find bridges to talk. You know, as we can in incorporate the bridges we can yeah, get right. to yeah. them. Both of those concepts. That's a really good example of how the more um, familiar, the, the more natural word um, can still be connected to this more important context It can still be used to, to communicate something deeper to, to, to say the that So The second thing I just I want to say, just to point out, back to our first night when we started with that poem from Wendell Berry Remember how I was pointing that out, how um, at, the, at the end of, of the poem I mean, he talks about how he begins with all these fears of despair over the future of the world. He goes out and sits among the water birds, right? And then he says, I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. And, and I actually just to think about what we didn't delve into it then, it says the grace of the world. And I said, so is the world something out there is it part of the world? It's not clear, right? It's a poem and, and it's just kind of left there. But do you see why that can matter, right? The language matters, it's worth stopping and thinking about that, right, is we can't, we can't seem to avoid that to a certain extent as human beings, that we talk about the world, we talk about nature, because that's partly, we do that, we objectify and talk about it, but we just have to be careful when we do that too much, right, and then, then we think that somehow we're not also a part of this larger whole that we call creation. Okay, so that was the first Misapprehension. She said she chose those words very carefully, saying that the Bible was our single best resource for reimagining our place in the created order. Why well, she didn't say nature, right? So that's the first misapprehension that she wanted to uh, to warn us against by using those particular words. All right, Felix, let's listen to the second thing she wants to. Hear. A second
3: widespread misapprehension is the notion that the Bible is relevant to contemporary concerns, a claim that in most cases leads to preaching and teaching in the church that makes little real use of scripture. That is because, in my experience, preachers and others generally cite the Bible's relevance when they are catching from it a decorative or decorous phrase to ornament an argument That has nothing essential to do with the Bible. In such contexts, and this was not true of your sermon today, Uh, but in those contexts relevance often means Bible as convenient add-on. My argument is quite different. The Bible is not relevant to our concerns and therefore dispensable to us in acting upon insights we gain elsewhere. Rather, I want to argue that scripture is the intellectual and spiritual resource most adequate to help us grasp the full dimensions of the geophysical problems we humans face and have largely precipitated in the age we now call the Anthropocene. There is a direct correlation between the core concerns of Scripture and our most urgent contemporary need, namely to reckon with the character of the world as it really is, the work of God's hands, and reckon also with the depredations that our hands have wrought. Can you pause it there? Yeah, well, we'll just go ahead and talk about this,
0: and then we'll pick up. You we don't, we don't have to skip forward. Okay, so there was a lot there. Um, remember, she's, she's saying that she chose those words to be in very carefully, and she's wanting to um, make clear that there are certain assumptions that are going to get in the way of what she's trying to say about the Bible and what, why the Bible is this incredible resource for what she says is our most important need. And it has to do with that word, she said, it, uh, that word, reimagine. We'll get to that in a second, but um, she says, I'm going to read these parts again just so that you can remember this and keep these in your mind, and then and we'll move on. Um, well, actually, we'll, we'll talk about something. Disgusting. One aspect of this, real quick, and then we'll move on. First, she says that there's a very common notion of what it means for something to be biblical, or for how people claim that the Bible is relevant. Remember what she said there? Like, when, 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 in kind of common sense, and uh, in, in our day and time, when when someone wants to show how the Bible is relevant, how do they do it? And, uh, Especially in the way that she was describing. Did y'all catch what she was saying there? Somebody would be willing to give me an example or try to put in your own words what she said. What do people do um, <clears throat> to try to show how the Bible is relevant to something that they're
1: saying? What's an example of how that happens in our world? Well, we start with something we already believe, I mean, we go to the scriptures to find something in here that supports our established position on something. Okay. Uh, you know, I like your phrase to, to use the Bible as an add-on. Yeah, decorative add-on.
0: <laughs> right. yeah, so her point is that when, when many people say they want to show that the Bible is relevant, they already know what they know, they know what they want to say, and the Bible just helps them say it more persuasively, or like, he- heads off any opposition because right if you disagree with me you disagree with the Bible right and so the way you make the Bible relevant is just bringing in a bunch of Bible but you bring in a bunch of Bible to decorate and to reinforce to do all those things with something that you've already decided you needed to be said does that does that sound like a fair charge does that happen in our world
1: well <laughs> you might scripture that's always something Am I am to being faithful to the, to the text, or am I making the text say what I want
0: So so, could could you, for instance, hear a sermon where um, uh, eighteen different scriptures were cited? Right? Does that make it Biblical, does that to demonstrate the Bible's re- relevance? Is that hearing the Bible, or is it a decorative on How would you know?
1: Well, in substance, In some sense it Russell with you have to know or have a sense of the the Bible as a whole. I mean one check on that because you know but the problem is is that you know, the Bible's on like its one book, 66. And we've demonstrated Throughout our history, as people of faith or people of scripture, that I can take the scriptures and make them support or defend or advocate any particular position I choose to, mm-hmm. if I pick and choose carefully, yeah. and ignore other sections that would tend not to support whatever particular stance i have taken. Yeah. Uh, and then. But it's so hard to come to the scripture. You know, how, how do you come to the scripture without any preconceived That's right. ideas? Yeah. how do you you know is that even possible? There is a chicken in egg
0: or circle circular aspect, and you probably know some technical terms we can get into right. for that. Um well, well, the point the reason why I want to pause here a little bit is that partly what she's saying is, you know, you could come to the Bible with the kinds of assumptions that Lynn White was critiquing and you say, oh, well, that's in the Bible. You know, I'm going to show how the Bible supports humanity's unique um, uh, authorization to do whatever it wants for the rest of creation. Or you could be someone who's very committed to certain principles about sustainability and environmentalism and say, well, this is right, and of course God's going to be on the side of what's right and good. So the Bible says this. And here's, you find what's wrong. In a second, she's going to say, gonna flesh out what she means by the Bible being our single greatest resource for reimagining our place. Okay. It's that word reimagining that's what's most crucial to her. So let's go ahead and play it with the rest of it Moreover, scripture
3: is essential for building genuine hope. As distinct from a baseless fantasy. As distinct from a baseless fantasy that everything will work out okay if we want it badly enough. Politicians may traffic in fantasies, but the biblical writers aim at building substantial hope. Hope grounded in realistic possibilities. And building hope of that kind is always and everywhere an act of the moral imagination. I am persuaded and hope to persuade you that the character of the Bible, its literary and theological character, reflects the conviction that imagining and reimagining over and over is the most fundamental and helpfully repetitive activity in which we engage as people of faith. As Christians do, for instance, whenever we receive bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ. In short, the Bible is imaginative literature in the strongest sense. But to say it is imaginative literature, is to say that the Bible addresses our moral capacity. For the moral imagination is the intellectual faculty whereby we reckon with anything that is not fully known to us, including God and the things of God. As Garrett Green has taught us, the moral imagination is what the biblical writers call heart, lev in Hebrew, Kaidea in Greek. Heart, the primary faculty whereby one may be drawn into relationship with God and neighbor. And so, of course, what the biblical writers write is chiefly addressed to the heart, the moral imagination. When people like us, mostly Christians, I would assume, in this room, when people of faith say the Bible is inspired, at least part of what we mean is surely that the Bible is or should be a primary shaper of our imagination about all manner of things, all dimensions of what it is to be human. But here is an interesting thing, even a a miraculous thing. The Bible has the power to awaken and renew imagination, even among people who don't hold to the claim of its inspiration. I have found this over and over, so-called secular audiences profoundly moved by biblical representations of reality. Their perspective clarified by looking through the, those literary lenses, lenses that were carefully ground by people in a minor country in Western Asia some two to 3,000 years ago. When I use the metaphor of lenses, I am adopting Calvin's metaphor of reading scripture, being like putting on a pair of spectacles and then looking at the world in a totally different way. As a very near-sighted person, I can appreciate the miracle in that. Thanks. <clears throat> so we'll... Okay.
0: So, she says that, I am persuaded that the character of the Bible reflects the conviction that imagining and reimagining, over and over, is the most fundamental and healthfully repetitive activity we engage in as Christians, as people of faith. She said, the Bible is imaginative literature in the strongest sense. She said, this is the heart of the Bible for her. So, to use the Bible as it's meant to be used, the Bible is relevant to us, not because of some other concerns that we've brought in. She's saying the Bible is relevant because of the way it shapes our imaginations Speaks to our hearts, and she said, "Real biblical heart, in both Greek and Hebrew, has to do with that moral imagination." What do we mean by moral imagination? So, when you think of imagination, right, you're thinking of just seeing things, what what you see, what you can conjure up in your mind, right? But moral imagination means who do you see in your world, right? Moral gets to relationships, right? Where am I? Who am I in relationship to you and you? That's, that's where we're getting to the realm of morality. So your moral imagination is who counts, you know, I, I mentioned in our first week expanding our, our definition of neighbor to or family to include the rest of creation. That's what she means by the Bible speaking most fundamentally to the heart and to the moral imagination. She's saying that's the level at which the Bible is the most fundamental resource we need for Letting us come to terms with the reality that we exist in and the re- and the world that we, what we've done to the world. So there's a lot there, I know. Uh, I'll send you the link and be, please listen to it again. Um, I really like what she has to say too, and I won't dwell on this, but she says, I've seen this over and over, that non-Christians, people of no faith, um, continue to be struck by the Bible's capacity to shape their own imagination, kind of by surprise, right? It catches them off guard. They don't have any prior claim to the Bible being special, but they find themselves being caught up in this new world of seeing the world in a way that deeply resonates with them. Just by a show of hands, how many of you, like, when you heard that, does that make sense to you, or do you have... A story you could tell of someone who had no experience with the Bible, may not have even thought the Bible was anything special, but they heard a story, or they had an encounter with the Bible, and it, it just grabbed them. They saw themselves, they saw the world in a way that they hadn't before, and they were drawn in. Whatever happened from there, you know, there could be a lot of individual stories. Just show of hands. Does that sound familiar to you? Are you Or let's just put it this way. Are you surprised to hear her say that? That the Bible has that capacity to draw people in even when they might be resistant and shape their imaginations in a compelling way? Raise your hands if you think that's that sounds right. (laughs) Okay. So as she concluded, she said like she used the metaphor of lenses, right? She's like, these are the lenses that we look through the world that shape our moral imagination. Again, moral imagination about relationships, right? Who, what, what is included in the relationships that matter for what, for who we, how we understood, who we ourselves understand ourselves to be, and what we should do. She then goes on to say, now we're going to take a look at about five. Different lenses, all kind of showing us the same thing, but basically she delves deeply into five different passages throughout the Bible. We're not going to travel with her through that. It's amazing because she interweaves these passages with some poetry from Wendell Berry and some people like that that she's spent a lot of time with in the past. But we're going to leave that behind and go back to the slideshow. I'm just going to talk about two, and do it very briefly to flesh out what she means in the title of her talk, the land is kin. So thinking of the rest of creation as kin, as family, as part of the fundamental moral imagination of the Bible. Uh, The first one of these lenses that she um, takes us to is something that Reagan brought up last week. So Felix, let's go to the next slide. So we're, we're going to Genesis 2 here. And one, one, one way you could describe this is this is biblical anthropology, not anthropology in the like, kind of contemporary academic sense, but what is the biblical view in that sense of moral imagination? What, who are we as human beings? And we get several rich answers to that right off the bat in the Bible. We're looking right now just at this famous verse, Genesis 2-7, which we'll also be reminded of in about five weeks than that when Lent begins. Okay, Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed the human being, dust from the fertile soil. So last week, Rayden pointed out that the Hebrew word used in both places are closely, closely related. I mean, one builds on the other. So the word there, human being, is the word Adam. So Adam's not like Steve or Fred or some, like, proper name. Adam in Hebrew is... It's a word directly related for, it's like earthling. Literally, it's a, that's a, a pretty accurate way of putting it in English, would be like earthling. So the Lord God formed the human being, or the earthling, Adam, dust from, and she translates, here I'm following Ellen Davis, who's a Hebrew scholar, so I'm going to rely on her, um, her own translation, but it's Adam from Adama. So the word Adama. It's sometimes just rendered dust or dirt, but it is the word for fertile soil, what you grow things out of. So that's, a, that's actually a picture of a farm in, in contemporary Israel, right there. So, the, the first human being is so tightly related just by the words to the word for soil, right? Adam, Adamah. Do you remember from last week? This is actually a pun, right? That's a pun in Hebrew. It's also, there's also a related pun in English where the word for human and another word closely related have that same root. Do you remember what Reagan said? Human and humus. Right, another word for soil, like especially the rich soil that that things can grow out of. So humans come from humus. That would be the equivalent of what Genesis 2-7 says. There's another layer of this too in Hebrew, in that the word Adom And in Hebrew, really, what you've got are these roots, like, more or less what we transliterate as A, the D, and the M, and then you can interchange various vowels. But Adom is the name for that color that I tried to turn the font right there. It's that reddish-brown color, which is also the color of the soil. It's also the color, the indigenous skin color of the people who lived in that part of the world. So think about all the ways those are related. It's the same word for soil, for human beings, Adam, Adama, and Adon. Adam, for the skin color, for the soil color, soil, and the human being. So you've got that relationship right there. That's where we come from. And it's even a relationship of priority, right? The land here, the soil, the living soil that all life comes from, came 1st There They're in Genesis 2. Any questions about that? Okay, the second one we'll move through real quick is from the, uh, the book that often would come up in people's like, top ten least favorite books of the Bible It would probably win that contest. But before we move that slide, let me just see if we can guess. We had a contest. Some of you may know this is kind of Bible nerd, but like, what would be your guess? So Family Feud style, what would be the, the yep, most votes is the least favorite book of the Bible for folks who really know the Bible and, and we're going to stick with the Old Testament. But what would you guess? Leviticus. Leviticus. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
1: Leviticus in the Old Testament, and, and why would that be, John? Well, because it's mostly either genealogies, but a lot of just priestly uh, uh, rituals, rules. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, to us it doesn't sound very relevant. Right. This to have been holy Yeah. How to be holy? Testament. Right. How to be holy, and especially in terms of
0: a lot of do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. Right. And from a time that's that, that so many of them seem very foreign. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, Jews and Christians and many contemporary Jews, Leviticus is like like broccoli, brussels, like whatever your least favorite vegetable, or just not
1: your go-to book. It's good for you, but you don't like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and Ellen and Davis actually said that Leviticus is the greenest in the way we usually talk about green, as far as like ecologically aware. It is the greenest book of the Bible in her view. We'll get into that a little more in a few weeks. She even says it's got this incredibly mystical heart. You just have to learn what's going on there. Um, but it's quite a task to, to try to persuade people that. So, <clears throat> Felix, let's look at this last slide here. <clears throat> so, look at this one verse. And again, we're not trying to say, oh, we picked out a couple of verses and this is going to convince you. We're talking about an underlying imagination, right? Moral imagination. How do we see ourselves in relation to all else that God has created. So this is God speaking and saying, I will remember my Jacob covenant, and yes, my Isaac covenant, and yes, my Abraham covenant, I will remember. And the land I will remember. The wording might sound a little awkward. Um, if, in, in, if you want to look that up later in, your own, in other translations, it would just say, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. My promise, my pledge to be in this binding relationship with Jacob. My covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. And the land I will remember. Look at that on your own for a minute, and then um, do you notice anything that seems
1: significant? The part of the covenant that he makes with the three is, if we still use the term, promised land. Mm-hmm. I'm um, you know, part of the covenant is all the this land, Right. You and your civilians. Good, good, right. So
0: the land is part of the promise to whom originally? Okay. Good. So <clears throat> we'll stop playing guess my read my mind. I just wanted to see if you saw this. That's <laughs> a bad habit sometimes. So the promise is originally to Abraham. Notice here in what direction are we moving in this verse? Backwards. What's that? Backwards. Backwards. Those of you who have some biblical familiarity, is this how it's normally written and normally said? What do you normally hear? <laughs> right. And so when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, Moses asked, well, who is this? And God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's so what you see just about everywhere. So it's that's, that's really striking that here we have in reverse order. Okay, so just just notice that for a second. Um, Let's go ahead and go to the the other slide. So, what we have here, too, is uh, there's two, two really cool things I want to point out there. God says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and the land. So, they're all included. The land is included in the covenant as an equal partner with the family of Abraham. Right? And so, what we have... In the history of Israel, but really, this is, Israel is the, the like um, the example, the paradigm really for all of humanity. God's working with them in an intimate way, but to teach us all. Here we go. So we've got relationships between the people and the land, but both the land and the people have relationships with God. The land is not down below the people. The land is over here. The land is also a part of the covenant. And when we say the land, I put that in the scare quotes, because by land here, we're not just talking about soil, but really everything that grows from it depends on it, whether it's the plants or the animals who eat the plants, the animals who eat the animals who eat the plants, right? The entire community of living beings, that starts with that soil. So you, you see that, how the land itself is a covenant partner in all of these relationships. The other thing, and you know, you could maybe make too much of this, but I don't think that it's a reach. Go back to that slide before if you can. If we're going backwards here, and normally the focus is on the original promise to Abraham, is it... Does it make sense to say that the land has a certain priority in the covenant? To say that even more than the people, before the people, the land starts the whole thing. We're going back all the way to Abraham, and then we even go back further. Say, in the land. Of There's a certain fundamental priority of that relationship with the land. Okay, so, um, given that we had enough to work on with the going back and forth with the videos and everything, I was going to show you, and I'll just, I'll just kind of throw this out, and then we have time for a question or two, and then we've got for basketball. And um, we're talking about these relationships. If we have time later, I'll put it in, I'll send it on Facebook or something like that. Have any of you seen the film, the movie that came out, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, the Noah movie with Russell Crowe? You seen it? Do you remember that when he and his family on making on board the ark, that the last humans that, that escape, the last people escape, and they're all huddled around fire on the boat, and Noah says, "I'm gonna tell you a story. The first story my father told me, and then, and, and that was told to him by his father. Do y'all remember that at all?" So he then, he, no, this is Noah, a fictional Noah, and it takes some liberties. He then. Proceeds to, to tell the story of Genesis chapter 1. It doesn't follow the exact wording, but pretty close. I want you to watch this. This is some homework. Just look it up, or I, I can send it to you. Um, it maps basically Genesis 1 with this very quick montage of the kind of basic stages in our current, you know, kind of scientific consensus on evolutionary development. And most of it maps on pretty nicely with the various stages, the various days of creation. Uh, I, I wanted to just kind of throw that out there, we have some time later. It's, it's interesting to see, because we're talking about the bio- moral imagination, right? You've, you've got building up from um, the earth forms, and you've got water, and you've got sea creatures, and you start to see various animals and mammals, and then you, it's going, going very quickly, you've got some dinosaurs, and then you see, the grow, grow. You see, like very basically, like kind of a monkey, and then there's kind of a flash, which you think represents there's something different happening, but not completely different. Now that you have these new creatures in the garden, but it's following the story. It's and it's very powerful to see those two together, um, reinforcing this idea of the land is kin. That's Genesis one, and there's a lot of questions. We could have a long discussion about what you see in that clip. Um, But there's a kinship there with those other creatures there, and very closely, a few tiny tweaks, we can talk about those, between what you see there looking like this fast forward trip through the current scientific consensus around evolution imposed on Genesis 1, right? There was day and night, light and darkness the first day, and the sun and moon, then dry land and water, all of these things progressing, mapping onto that. So we've, we've looked at all these things. If you have a chance to look at, look at the, um, the Noah movie. What do you think? Is this a um, persuasive response to the claim that the Bible is the problem? Um, we've only looked at a few of these lenses that um, Ellen Davis wanted us to see, see the moral imagination at the heart of the Bible that helps us to reimagine and reorient ourselves rightly in the world and in relationship to our fellow creatures. She says it's the single greatest resource that we have. Um, what do you think about that claim so
2: far? You think this is a good, good start? What questions do you have? I have a couple of thoughts, yeah. Andy. One, back to the how we use the Bible as an add on or as that which shapes our imagination. I've, been, I've just been thinking about the word dominion. Like the people who would argue that. As humans, the Bible says we have dominion over creation. They can point to a Bible verse that seems to say just that. We have—it does say that—we have dominion over creation. And so therefore, we can do with it what we need or want to do. What's lacking in that argument, though, is what we imagine when we hear the word dominion. Genesis has been showing us what the dominion of God looks like therefore, what should our dominion look like? And that's the difference between, I'm going to make an argument and point out my Bible verse that agrees with me, and I'm going to allow the Bible to shape my imagine, my entire imagination. Right? And then secondly, back to the relationship of all creation. Both what we would call the inanimate stuff and us as neighbors. If you think about the places in the Hebrew Bible where there is great human injustice, where things are really bad, there's also ecological crisis. Before Noah, I mean it says every thought was evil. And you have a flood, kind of an uncreation, right? In creation God separated the waters, and the flood there's no separation. But it started... So, moral crisis led to ecological crisis. And then, if you look at the place in Egypt, you had empire enslaving people. And therefore, creation responded to them. I've heard similar arguments. You know, when Katrina hit New Orleans, some people would say that was a natural disaster. Some people would say that, that was also a moral disaster. And how how thinly that veil is in the biblical imagination between the way we treat people and the way we treat the rest of creation. So just to be clear with Katrina, um, what you're saying is
0: to say it's a moral disaster is not God was judging everyone in New Orleans. And this, you're saying that the the kinds of devastation that occurred and the people that have impacted has to do with human decisions to not invest in certain protections for certain people or places. Leading other people higher. That's what you mean. That's right. Okay, that's a big difference than saying God was just mad everyone and everyone in the Noah was insent this. So yeah, the Dominion stuff, and with the Noah clip, that's where we would have gone a little bit. Because I think again, back to imagination, when you see it visually, it, it makes a difference. So there's some there's some ad not some ad-lib, there's some liberty with Genesis 1 in the movie Noah. Um, you know, it's not in the text, but no you knows like everything in its place, everything the relationship, everything in harmony. You know, when he's talking about it, it was all good with humanity at it its center. But it said it was all good, um, and then it's just got this visual. And right after, yes, there's just an apple, that very, very quickly zooms through what happens with this apple. But then it shows this powerful, basically, cane killing Abel by whacking on the head with a rock and then it's like these two brothers fast forward through history, they change outfits, every kind of warrior costume or you know, military um, uh, arraign that you've ever seen throughout history up until the modern day. Um, the part that it leaves out though is that not only very quickly when things get out of whack are the relationships between humanity broken, but the relationship between humanity and the land. The rest of creation is broken, right? That's part of what when, when um, Adam and Eve, leave the garden, God says, you know, not only are the two of you going to have problems with each other, but you're going to have a hard time, you're going to have to deal with all these thorns by the sweat of your brow, or you're going to get food out of the ground, there'll be, you know, there's enmity between a man and a woman, same thing between you and the rest of the creation. All of those relationships got out of whack in the beginning. So, yeah, and it's more, if the, that clip or there's some other use help us feel that when we see it visually as well. It, and then, real quick with dominion, right, I mean, yes, there's that word, but then we have to, how does, where, we interpret dominion in light of where do we come from, who do we owe part, like, we come from that, that earth, and what kind of king, that's where dominion is most related to, what kind of king is a good king that, like, treats its domain, right, like this, like, that, that would use it up, like, right? that's not good rulership, and if dominion is a reflection of how God, Created the world and gave us some share in using it well and wisely, then that's our clue to what dominion means. In fact, I think I could show you another, send you another podcast with Ellen Davis where she thinks you should translate dominion into English as exercise, skilled mastery, skill knowing what needs to be where, or how the, how the relationships should be. But that's a better translation to get to the heart of what the term means: exercise, skilled mastery. Mastery is still an awesome problem. Any other thoughts or questions as we go? I know we're not talking about, you know, should I be recycling or um, how much longer should I drive a non-driver that kind of thing? We we can get there, and there's a lot we can get into there, but this is some real basic stuff. We talk about our moral imagination. <laughs> last thing I'll say is just to to pick up something from Reagan's talk last week Um, we talked about the bigness of these challenges and it's hard to know what to do and he pointed out that starting small is not a bad thing because you have no idea where it will take you right so find something (coughs) that you already love or if you're not sure what something in creation about developing you know, spending some time reflecting on your relationship with creation, whether it's, some people, um, you know, tagged me on Facebook or to talk about a native plant sale, we talked about native birds and native plants last week. Start small, find something like that that you love. If you're a gardener, keep doing that, and who knows where that will take you. Devin Shawgroff, who some of you know, um, she and her husband Paul are often with us for worship. She has a grant with the Nature Conservancy, and her job is to do nothing, but to find ways to get different groups of kids outdoors. This is the Nature Conservancy who cares about our stewardship of nature, creation. And they've come to the realization that there will not be um, the, the chances of having another generation of folks who care the same way that the current generation leading that organization do care about sustaining um, the planet we have. They have, to, they have to know it and to know it they need to love it and they need to be outdoors in it before any of that can happen. That's her job. So you've got to know, you've got to love first of all. So I encourage you to find ways to do that. Starting small can kind of lead you big. There are big questions, political questions, we can get into those, but find something, if you already love something about being out in creation and um, you know, uh, connecting with your relationship with creation, do that, enjoy that. may not be the easiest time in January or February, but look and think about ways you can do that. So thank you so all again for being here. We'll see you next week with Janet Lanza, The Ecologist.